Good afternoon, everyone. At the end of this coming week, we will be observing the Passover. And so we begin another cycle of the annual festivals of God, which begins with the Passover, which is the first of the seven annual festivals. And the festivals of God include the weekly Sabbath and these annual festivals. We might ask, why were they given? Why were they given? They were given essentially for two basic reasons. First of all, to keep us continually reminded of God's grace extended through his plan of salvation for mankind, and also to keep us mindful of our obligation to obey God's gracious laws. And I thought it, this would be an opportune time to review once again the uh, annual Sabbaths and how they reveal God's plan of salvation. Now, this won't be anything new for most of the people who will hear this sermon, but it would be new indeed to a great many people in the world. There may be others who will hear it later who uh, have never heard these things before. But I want to discuss today how the holy days and festivals of God reveal the plan of salvation. Now notice what God said concerning the Feast of Unleavened Bread, why the Feast of Unleavened Bread was to be kept. As we read in Exodus 13, beginning with verse 8, Exodus 13 and verse 8, this is done because of what the Lord did for me, that is for Israel, when I came up out of Egypt, it shall be a sign to you on your hand and as a memorial between your eyes that the Lord's law may be in your mouth for with a strong hand the Lord had brought you out of Egypt. Notice the feast was to be kept and it was to be a sign and a memorial, a reminder that the Lord's law was to be in their mouth. And the Hebrew word for sign, which is oath, can mean a token or a sign as a reminder. In this, in this case, it's a reminder of God's grace as expressed in Israel's deliverance and of the duty of the people to keep the laws of God. And this twofold purpose for the feasts is carried through in the lessons taught by every one of them. In Exodus 31, Beginning with verse 13, Exodus 31, verse 13, God emphasized the importance of keeping his Sabbaths in his final remarks before sending Moses back down the mountain with the tablets on which were written the Ten Commandments. And here the word sign takes on the additional meaning of an identifying mark, a sign between God and his people, identifying his people as those who are sanctified and sanctified means to be separated to a holy purpose and that it is God who sanctifies them. Exodus 31, beginning with verse 13, Exodus 31, verse 13, Speak also to the children of Israel, saying, Surely my Sabbaths you shall keep, for it is a sign between me and you throughout your generations that you may know that I am the Lord who sanctifies you. Notice they were to keep the Sabbaths to 
keep them mindful of the fact that they are sanctified by God. And he went on to say, you shall keep the Sabbath, therefore, it is, for it is holy to you. Everyone who profanes it shall surely be put to death. For whoever does any work on it, that person shall be cut off from among his people. Work shall be done for six days, but the seventh is the Sabbath of rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day, he shall surely be put to death. Therefore, the children of Israel shall keep the Sabbath to observe the Sabbath throughout their generations as a perpetual covenant. Notice the Sabbath itself is a covenant between God and his people. And it is a sign, as he went on to say, it is a sign between me and the children of Israel forever. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. And when he had made an end of speaking with him on Mount Sinai, he gave Moses two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone written with the finger of God. It's important for us to understand that God's plan of salvation is one that unfolds through history in successive stages. It is a step-by-step -step process that began with individuals like Noah and Abraham and eventually will encompass all mankind. The holy days or annual Sabbaths reveal the plan, the plan of salvation, in its historical and prophetic sequence. In Colossians chapter 2, beginning verse 16, and this is from Green's literal translation, we read, this is Colossians 2, verse 16, Do not let anyone judge you in eating or in drinking or in respect of a feast or the new moon or of Sabbaths, which are a shadow of things of coming, which are a shadow of coming things, but the body is of Christ. Now, notice in verse 17, it says, The Sabbaths are a shadow of coming things, but the body of Christ, which is translated here, the body is of Christ, but the word is is in italics because the Greek has no word for is in verse 17. It should read, which are a shadow of coming things or things to come, as it is in the King James Version, but the body of Christ. The body of Christ is to judge us in matters such as eating and drinking and feast keeping and so forth. And the body of Christ is the church and the head of the church is Christ. So, it is Jesus Christ who is to guide us and to direct us as the head of his church through his word in feast keeping and so forth, not the opinions of human beings. Now, the Greek word for shadow in this passage of scripture is skia, which means a shadow, a sketch or an outline. And the uh, word translated R is the Greek word esten, which is in the present indicative form, 
The present indicative in the Greek implies continuing action. Present and continuing action. And so what it's telling us says this, the Sabbaths are, not were, but are now and continue to be a shadow of things to come. In other words, they have prophetic significance. So that's what the Bible plainly tells us, that the Sabbaths are in part to give us a, a sketch, an outline of future events. An outline of God's plan, in other words, his purpose as he's working it out for human beings. The Sabbaths represent a prophetic and historical outline of God's plan of salvation. So with this introduction, let's review the highlights of how each of these festivals, these annual festivals, or actually the, will include the weekly Sabbath as well, and each one of them reveals uh, certain facets of God's grace extended to mankind through the plan of salvation. Now this is only a summary, and it's an incom incomplete summary, but we could go on indefinitely discussing the details of how these feasts relate to God's plan of salvation, but we'll just cover this in summary form today. First of all, let's discuss the weekly Sabbath, which dates back to creation itself. When human beings were created, it was then that God set apart the seventh day of the week for his holy purpose involving human beings. We read in Genesis 2, beginning with verse 1. Genesis 2 and verse 1, Thus the heavens and the earth and all the host of them were finished, and on the seventh day God ended his work which he had done, and rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, again made, made it holy, set it apart as something special, because in it he rested from all his work which God had created and made. So he had finished the other work which preceded this seventh day of creation and rested from that work on the seventh day and sanctified the, the seventh day as a day of rest. Now, God doesn't need to rest, but human beings need the Sabbath and the rest that is pictured by the Sabbath and so from the beginning, the Sabbath was sanctified. It was made holy. It was made separate and apart from the other days of the week. And from the beginning, God intended that the Sabbath day be kept as holy or sanctified, a day to honor him as the creator. And the Sabbath is a command, contrary to false assertions of some who claim it's not a command. It's a very plain in uh, scripture that it is a command and was from the beginning it's included as one of the ten commandments god gave to israel at mount, at mount sinai and it was a command before that as is shown by exodus 16 where god uh, renewed uh, or or uh, revealed once again to israel when the sabbath was because during their 
slavery in Egypt, they'd apparently forgotten the Sabbath and didn't really keep it, didn't know when it was. So they had to be shown when the commandment when the commandment was to be kept or when the Sabbath was to be kept, which was done as we read in Exodus 16, which was before Israel uh, got to Mount Sinai and the, and the Ten Commandments were given. In giving the Ten Commandments, God said in verse 8 of uh, Exodus 20, verse 8 of Exodus 20, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work, you nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your cattle, nor your stranger who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. And notice that it harkens back in this command to the very time of creation when God created the Sabbath and he hallowed it at that time. He made it holy at that time. The Sabbath is, among other things, a memorial of creation. It identifies the eternal God as the creator God. The God of Israel is the God who created the universe. He's the God who created all of the creatures of the earth. He's the one who created human beings. And the Sabbath helps identify him as such. It's also a reminder of being liberated or uh, or we might say, uh, well, I guess you could say it's a reminder, but it also points to a future uh, reality of liberation from sin and the oppression of Satan. There is prophetic meaning to the Sabbath, as well as a reminder of the creation. Because at the beginning of the millennium, of which the Sabbath is a type, Satan is to be bound and mankind will be freed from his influence for a thousand years. Revelation 20 and verse 1. Revelation 20 and verse 1, I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand, he laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And the Sabbath is a type of that period of rest from, from uh, Satan's oppression and his oppressive, violent rule. The Sabbath typifies the millennial rest when mankind will have a respite from Satan's influence in the fruitless labor and toil that has characterized the lives of most humans throughout history. In Hebrews 4, Hebrews 4 and verse 1, it says, Therefore, since a promise remains of entering his rest, let us fear lest any of you seem to have come short of it. Then going on in verse 4 of Hebrews 4, it says, For he has spoken in a certain place of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, in this place, they shall not enter my rest, speaking of when Israel was in the uh, wilderness, and this was a reference to the promised land, uh, since therefore it remains that some must enter it, and those to whom it was first preached 
did not enter it because of disobedience. It's talking about the, the uh, promised land, which is also a type of the millennial rest in certain respects. In uh, verse 9 of Hebrews 4, it goes on to say, There remains therefore a rest for the people of God. For he who has entered his rest has himself also ceased from his works as God did from his. So human beings are going to cease from their works separate and apart from God, their works of evil and serving Satan. They're going to rest from that. Therefore, let us be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. And he's hearkening back to the example of Israel in the wilderness and how they failed. And the word translated rest in verse 9 here, Hebrews verse 9, where it says, there remains therefore a rest for the people of God. The word translated rest is sabbatismos, the Greek word, which means Sabbath keeping. And from the standpoint of prophecy, the rest pictured by the Sabbath begins at the return of Jesus Christ in the first resurrection. So the Sabbath is both a reminder of the fact that God created the universe, created all of the creatures of the earth, created human beings, and also it's a looks forward to the future of God's kingdom. Where we read in Isaiah 32 and verse 1, Isaiah 32 and verse 1, Behold, a king will reign in righteousness, and princes will rule with justice. Verse 16, then justice will dwell in the wilderness and righteousness remain in the fruitful field. The work of righteousness will be peace and the effect of righteousness, quietness and assurance forever. My people will dwell in a peaceful habitation in secured dwellings and in quiet resting places. My people will dwell securely and in quiet resting places. 2 Thessalonians 1 and verse 4. 2 Thessalonians 1 and verse 4. Paul wrote to the church, We ourselves boast of you among the churches of God for your patience and faith in all your persecutions and tribulations that you endure, which is manifest evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you also suffer, since it is a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you and to give you who are troubled rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. So the time of Christ's rule on earth is spoken of several times in Scripture as a time of rest. And it will be a time of rest. That doesn't mean people won't... Uh, be uh, working in other respects, but from the standpoint of the toil, the tribulation, the suffering that mankind has endured for 6,000 years, it will be a time of rest. Now, then we begin with the first of the annual festivals, which is the Passover. The Passover points to the blood sacrifice of Jesus Christ who paid the penalty for our sins. In 1 Corinthians 5, verse 7, we're told, Therefore purge out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, since you 
truly are unleavened, for indeed Christ our Passover was sacrificed for us. This was evidently written during the Feast of Unleavened Bread when they had put away the leaven, but not all of the spiritual leaven was gone, as the context makes clear if you read in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And Paul wrote in Romans chapter 3, beginning with verse 24, Romans 3 and verse 24, that both Jews and Gentiles are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness, because in his forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed. Notice, in connection with Christ's sacrifice, God passes over our sins to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. In 1 Peter 2 and verse 24, 1 Peter 2 verse 24, it says, Jesus Christ who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree that we having died to sins might live for righteousness by whose stripes you are healed. Until we are covered by the blood of Jesus Christ through repentance, our sins are covered and uh, through the blood of Christ, through repentance and faith, until that time we are under the death penalty, every one of us because of our sins. In Ephesians 2 and verse 1, Ephesians 2 and verse 1, it says, You he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked according to the course of the world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love which he loved, uh, with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved or are being saved. And we've all earned the death penalty through our sins. You might remember the scripture we read earlier where God said anyone who works on the Sabbath is to be put to death. Breaking the Sabbath garners the death penalty as breaking any of God's laws. The wages of sin is death, we are told. And all of us through sin are worthy of death, but we can escape that penalty by having our sins forgiven by God through the blood of Jesus Christ who paid the penalty for our sins through his suffering and death. That's what the Passover pictures. Then immediately on the heels of the Passover is the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which symbolizes our walk with God as we struggle to put off sin and put on the new man in Christ. Israel left Egypt following God. God led them through the wilderness and they walked wherever God led. And that's what we're to do spiritually. 
Effort and faith is required for us to follow God. Salvation is a gift, but it is not a gift free of commitment, sacrifice, faith, and being willing to obey God. Salvation requires perseverance and faith toward God. We're told in 1 Corinthians 5, verse 7, 1 Corinthians 5, beginning verse 7, Therefore purge out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, since you truly are unleavened, for indeed Christ our Passover was sacrificed for us. So here we see the Feast of Unleavened Bread and Passover spoken of in the same breath, so to speak, because they go together. Therefore, let us keep the feast not with old leaven nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So unleavened bread pictures us, pictures us putting sin out of our lives, overcoming sin as we follow Jesus Christ. In Ephesians 4 and verse 17, Ephesians 4 and verse 17, This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord, that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind. We're not to walk as the rest of the world is walking. We're not to go down that path. We're to follow a different way of life. In verse 20 of Ephesians 4, it goes on to say, You have not so learned Christ, if indeed you have heard him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus that you put off concerning your former conduct the old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lusts and be renewed in the spirit of your mind and that you put on the new man which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. In Colossians 3 and verse 1, Colossians 3 and verse 1, it tells us if you were raised with Christ, and this is what is pictured by baptism, being the old man being dying to the flesh, being buried in the water of baptism, and then being raised up a new person in whom, in whom dwells the Spirit of God. And it represents a new way of life that we're to pursue following baptism. And so he says, if you are raised up with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God and set your mind on things above, not on things of the earth. In other words, we're to be motivated by uh, an awareness of God's laws and how to live according to his will. For you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Therefore, put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience, in which you yourselves once walked when you lived in them, but now... You yourselves are to put off all these, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. Do not lie to one another since you have put off the old man with his deeds and have put on the new man who is 
renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. So once you have made that commitment and are freed from slavery to sin and from the death penalty, we are to walk in the newness of life, having Jesus Christ as our model and guide. In Hebrews 3 and verse 14, it says, if we have become partakers of Christ, or we have become partakers of Christ, if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end, while it is said today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. So we are to be mindful of how we are to live in obedience and faith toward God and hear God's voice, not harden our hearts and rebel as the people of Israel did in the wilderness. The next feast in the series of annual festivals is Pentecost, which symbolizes the first fruits of God's Spirit. And the feast of Pentecost came at the end of the early harvest season in Palestine, the harvest of barley and wheat. And the New Testament church was founded on the day of Pentecost following the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's very likely also that the Old Covenant with Israel was sealed on the day of Pentecost as well. Now, those who have been truly converted and remain faithful in this age from Adam to the time of Christ's second coming are the first fruits of God. And they are destined to be in the first resurrection, which will come at the uh, end of this age and the beginning of a new age. And so all the faithful of God who have lived and died during that period or including those who are living at the time of Christ's second coming are to be in that resurrection. In Romans 8, verse 18, Romans 8, verse 18, Paul wrote, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us for the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the sons of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. Not only that, but we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. Now the first fruits of the Spirit imply that there will be other, others to follow who also have fruits of the Spirit, but those in this age have the first fruits of the Spirit. Just as the early harvest is the first fruits 
of each of the harvest season. In uh, James 1 and verse 18, we read of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. So again, those who are converted in this age receive the Spirit of God and remain faithful are the first fruits in terms of redemption. They're the first ones who will be glorified and made uh, full sons in the kingdom of God in the fullest sense as they will share God's nature fully. In Revelation 20 and verse 4, Revelation 20 and verse 4, we, we read, I saw thrones and they sat on them and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. But the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Now, there are to be a series of resurrections. This is the first resurrection in terms of human beings other than Jesus Christ. We've already read that Christ is the first of the first fruits, so to speak. But these are the first human beings who will be resurrected to eternal life. Uh, other than Jesus Christ. And it goes on to say, Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him for a thousand years. So Pentecost pictures the gathering of the first fruits during this age leading up to the time of Jesus Christ. Then comes... Later in the year, the Feast of Trumpets, which points to the time of the second coming of Christ and the first resurrection. In 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20, but now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive, but each one in his own order. So there are to be a series of resurrections, and all who have lived and died will be resurrected, but not all at the same time. But first it was, as he says, it's Christ the firstfruits. Then afterward those who are Christ's at his coming. That's the what is called the first resurrection, even though it uh, is, is speaking of the first resurrection of those who follow after Christ's original resurrection, which occurred about 2,000 years ago. Going on in 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 13, 1 Thessalonians 4 and verse 13, I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, and this is a metaphor for death, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will 
bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For this I say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep or dead. Again, this is a metaphor of death in this case. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will raise, rise first. Then we, we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Now notice where these people are going to be. They're going to be on the earth. They're not going to be up in heaven. They're not coming with Christ out of heaven. They're on the earth and they're going to be resurrected and caught up to meet Christ in the air along with those who are alive and faithful at that time. And then having joined Christ in the air, the earth's atmosphere, they will always be with the Lord because Christ is going to descend from that time or from, from, from uh, he's going to, to descend at that time, I should say, to the earth. He's in the process of coming back, returning to the earth to assume his throne the throne of David in Jerusalem. And at that time, Christ will assume authority over all the earth to rule all nations, and he will put down his enemies, establishing an everlasting kingdom of righteousness, which we read about in Revelation 11 and verse 15. Revelation 11, verse 15, Then the seventh trumpet, or seventh angel, it says, sounded, which is uh, the seventh in a series of seven trumpets, which are uh, mentioned here in, in the context in Revelation, which symbolize the beginning of God's intervention in the affairs of mankind to bring this age to an end and save the world from utter destruction and usher in the kingdom of God. And so these seven trumpets are especially what is symbolized and pictured by the uh, Feast of Trumpets and especially the seventh trumpet signaling the time of Christ's second coming. It goes on to say there were loud voices in heaven saying the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sat before God on their thrones fell on their faces and worshiped God saying, we give you thanks, O Lord God Almighty, the one who is, who was, and who is to come, because you have taken your great power and reigned. Now this is future. This is a prophecy. This hasn't happened yet. But uh, a lot of prophecies in the Bible are spoken of as though they were in the past. The past tense is often used of prophetic statements in the Bible especially in Revelation. It goes on to say, The nations were angry, and your wrath has come in the time of the dead that they should be judged, and that you should reward your servants, the prophets and the saints, and those who fear your name, small and great, shall destroy those who destroy the earth. So Jesus Christ is coming. 
pictured by the Feast of Trumpets and these other things go along with his second coming where he brings his reward with him to reward his servants, the prophets and the saints, the faithful of this age, and destroy those who destroy the earth to bring uh, judgment on the nations to punish them for their wickedness and to bring peace to the earth by destroying those who are opposed to God and they will have to be resurrected later and, and see the error of their ways. We read in Daniel chapter 7 and verse 13, Daniel 7 and verse 13, I was watching in the night visions. Behold, one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom the one which will not be destroyed. So this is looking forward again to the time when Jesus Christ establishes his government over the earth. Going on in verse 27 of Daniel 7, it tells us more about this than the kingdom and dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven, this is on the earth, shall be given to the people, the saints of the Most High. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey Him. So the, as we read in Revelation, the saints will rule with Christ when He establishes His kingdom on the earth. In 2 Peter 3 and verse 13, Peter wrote, Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So the earth is going to be renewed. It'll be the same earth, but it's going to be renewed in many ways because Jesus Christ will be ruling instead of man ruling himself under Satan's domination and his oppressive uh, rule over the earth. Following the Feast of Trumpets, ten days later, of the tenth day, the Trumpets is the first day of the seventh month. Following that on the tenth day is the Feast of Atonement, which pictures the reconciliation of Israel and Judah to God and consequently of the reconciliation of all mankind to God which will follow as Christ's rule is extended to all nations. And this will be accomplished through repentance, through the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ, and through the putting away of Satan. And all of these are pictured by the symbolism associated with the Day of Atonement. In Ezekiel 16, verse 60, Ezekiel 16, verse 60 we read, Nevertheless, I will remember my covenant with you in the days of your youth, and I will establish an everlasting covenant with you, people of Israel. Then you will remember your ways and be ashamed when you receive your older and your younger sisters, for I will give them to you for daughters, but not because of my covenant with you, and I will establish my covenant with you. Then you shall know that I am the Lord." 
that you may remember and be ashamed and never open your mouth anymore because of your shame when I will provide you an atonement for all you have done, says the Lord God. This is speaking of the time when Christ returns and when a new covenant will be established with the people of Israel and Judah and then ultimately the nations of the earth. In Ezekiel 20 and verse 42, Ezekiel 20 and verse 42, then you shall know that I am the Lord when I bring you into the land of Israel. Israel will have been taken into a brutal captivity. And then those left alive at the end of a period of three and a half years will be brought out of that captivity and led to the land of Israel by, by God. And he says, I will bring you to the land of Israel and to the country for which I raised my hand in an oath to give to you to your fathers. And there you will remember your ways and all your doings with which you were defiled. And you shall loathe yourselves in your own sight because of all the evils that you have committed. You shall know that I am the Lord when I have dealt with you for my name's sake, not according to your wicked ways, nor according to your corrupt doings, O house of Israel, says the Lord God. The Feast of Atonement is actually a, a, a fast day. It's a day of fasting and repentance, which pictures the repentance that will be accomplished by the people of Israel after Christ's return, and they have been humbled. They will be brought out of, out of captivity, and they will confess their sins. They will see that their ways were evil, and they will loathe themselves, it says, as they repent because of the evil that they have committed. In Zechariah 12, verse 10, Zechariah 12, verse 10, I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look on me whom they pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. In that day there shall be a great mourning in Jerusalem like the mourning at Hadad Rimon in the plain of Megiddo. So the house of David, which was of the tribe of Judah, and the others of Judah, the Jews will acknowledge Jesus Christ and will mourn because of their rejection of Christ which occurred when Jesus Christ was cruci crucified. The nation rejected him. The leaders of the nation were instigators of his crucifixion. They were not the only guilty ones. All mankind, in a way, was guilty, but they had their part to play in it. And uh, for the most part, the Jewish people at that time rejected Christ. There were some Jews who were converted at that time, but the majority of the Jews 
during the apostolic era rejected the gospel, rejected Christ, and have continued to reject Christ uh, from that time to this. And uh, of course, they're not the only ones who've rejected Christ. The whole world pretty much has rejected Christ. But they will um, be converted at that time along with others, but they will be among the first to be converted after Christ's coming. In Zechariah 13 and verse 1, Zechariah 13, verse 1, In that day a fountain shall be opened for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and uncleanness. And it shall be in that day, says the Lord of hosts, that I will cut off the names of the idols from the land and they shall no longer be remembered. And I will cause the prophets and the unclean spirit to depart from the land, that is, the false prophets. We already read in Revelation 20 how Satan is to be bound at, and it's at that time that that will occur. It's pictured by the Feast of Atonement. It also, Atonement also features the application of Christ's sacrifice as a propitiation for our sins, all of our sins. That is, the sins of the whole world. In Romans 5, verse 11, Not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation or the atonement. In Romans 5, verse 18, Therefore, as through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation, even so through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience many will be made righteous. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace abounded much more, so that as sin reigned in death, even so in grace, so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Christ Jesus, our Lord. It is through Jesus Christ that man will be reconciled to God through his sacrifice and through his teachings and so forth. Then, following the Feast of Atonement is the Feast of Tabernacles. And the prophetic, the prophetic scenario pictured by the Fall Holy Days begins with a world full of every plague and evil imaginable, a world at the precipice of utter destruction as a result of mankind following his own ways instead of God's, the nations of Israel will have been largely destroyed and the remnant will be in a brutal captivity. And it's a time of, of which Scripture says in Matthew 24, verse 22, unless those days were shortened, no flesh should be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. Things are going to become so dire, so perverse, wicked, and corrupt that the world will have reached its end, uh, reached the end of its rope. And the only way that humanity 
can survive what will come at that time is by God's intervention. And Jesus Christ is going to intervene just in time to save mankind from himself. Human beings have the capacity now to destroy all life from the face of the earth. And God is not going to allow that to happen. He's going to intervene to keep it from happening. And Jesus Christ is then, when he intervenes, he's going to bring back his people out of captivity to their own land, the people of Israel and Judah. And he will comfort them. He will heal them physically, psychologically, and spiritually. He will teach them his law. He will give them his Holy Spirit so that they can understand it and obey it. He will put an end to oppression, to hunger, to crime, to war, to disease, to all the evils that afflict this world. He will extend his blessings to the Gentiles who will learn to fear and worship the true God in place of dumb idols. And all the world will, will rejoice and be glad as every blessing imaginable is poured out on mankind. And God will teach mankind the way of his salvation. And he will remove every tear and every sorrow. And every human being who wants to will be adopted into the family of God. And that's what's pictured by the Feast of Tabernacles. And so we read in Isaiah 52 and verse 7, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who proclaims peace, who brings glad tidings of good things, who proclaims salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. The Feast of Tabernacles pictures the reign of Jesus Christ on the earth, especially the millennial reign of Christ, but it actually goes beyond that in its meaning, but that's an important part of it. The gospel message of God's word is ultimately about peace on earth. The word gospel means good news. And the truth of God's word, even though it covers many different facets of how God works with human beings, ultimately it is the good news of peace on earth, of glad tidings of good things. It's a message of salvation. It's a message of the reign of God. And we read in Isaiah 40 and verse 1, Comfort, yes, comfort my people, says your God. Speak comfort to Jerusalem and cry out to her that her warfare is ended. Jerusalem has probably been overrun by armies, destroyed by, by um sieges and invasions more than any other single place on the face of the earth. But then God will say, speak comfort to Jerusalem and cry out to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, for she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be exalted and every mountain and hill brought low. The crooked places shall be made straight and the rough places smooth. 
The glory of the Lord shall be revealed in all flesh. Shall, shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord is spoken. So there is going to be, there, there will be a lot of changes. And as we read, it will be in a sense a new earth. There are, the changes will be so pro profound and so, so uh, far reaching that it will be in many ways a new earth. The topography of the earth, among other things, as it mentions here, will be changed. But the most important thing is the government will be changed. And justice will prevail in place of injustice. Righteousness will prevail in place of evil. There will be comfort. Iniquity will be pardoned. The crooked will be made straight. The glory of God will be revealed. In Isaiah 40 and verse 9, it says, O Zion, you who bring good tidings, get up into the high mountain, O Jerusalem, you who bring good tidings, lift up your voice with strength, lift it up, do not be afraid. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold, the Lord God shall come with a strong hand and his arm shall rule for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his work before him. He will feed his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs with his arm and carry them in his bosom and gently lead those who are with young. The peoples of the world are like sheep without a shepherd. And Christ spoke especially of the people of Israel. Sheep without a shepherd. The world needs a shepherd to guide it. And so we read in Isaiah 51 and verse 3, Isaiah 51, beginning in verse 3, the Lord will comfort Zion. He will comfort all her waste places. He will make her wilderness like Eden and her desert like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in it, thanksgiving in the voice of melody. Listen to me, my people, and give ear to me, O my nation, for law will proceed from me, and I will make my justice rest as a light of the peoples. My righteousness is near, my salvation has gone forth. My arms will judge the peoples, the coastlands will wait upon me and on my arm, they will trust. Lift up your eyes to the heavens and look on the earth beneath. For the heavens shall vanish away like smoke, the earth grow old like a garment, but those who dwell in it will die in like, like manner, but my salvation will be forever, and my righteousness will not be abolished. Listen to me, you who know righteousness, you peoples in whose heart is my law. Do not fear the reproach of men, nor be afraid of their insults, for the moth will eat them up like a garment, and the worm will eat them like wool. But my generate, but my righteousness, uh, my uh, righteousness will be forever, and my salvation from generation to generation. Ezekiel eleven verse seventeen it says, "Therefore, thus says the Lord God, I will gather you from the peoples, assemble you from the countries where you've been scattered. I will give you the land of Israel, and they will go there. They will take all its detestable things, all of its abominations from there." And I will give them one heart and one spirit within them. 
take the stony heart out of their flesh and give them a heart of flesh that they may walk in my statutes and keep my judgments and do them and they shall be my people and I will be their God. Now, the problem for the last 6,000 years has been the heart of man influenced by Satan, the devil. But God is going to get to the root of the problem. He is going to change the hearts of men and he is going to put his law into their minds. As we read in Jeremiah 31 and verse 33, this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And God will pour out his spirit on all flesh. As we read in Joel 2 and verse 28, it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And there are many other blessings associated with the reign of Jesus Christ. And we could go on for the rest of the day reading about it. But God's kingdom is going to be established on the earth and God is going to dwell with his people forever after that. It says in Isaiah 59, verse 20, Isaiah 59, verse 20, the Redeemer will come to Zion and to those who turn from transgression in Jacob, says the Lord. As for me, says the Lord, this is my covenant with them. My spirit which is upon you and my words which I have put in your mouth shall not depart from your mouth, nor from the mouth of your descendants, nor from the mouth of your descendants' descendants, says the Lord from this time and forevermore. So God's kingdom is going to be established permanently and God is going to teach mankind his ways and change make a change in the nature of human beings in the sense that God's spirit will be in them and they will be yielded to his way of life. Then, following on the heels of the Feast of Tabernacles is another feast which is the last great day of the feast, and although it's associated directly with the Feast of Tabernacles, it's actually a separate feast with its own meaning. Scripture tells us, well, Scripture, let me say first, Scripture doesn't tell us that when you die, you don't really die, you just remain alive in a different place. The Scripture does not tell us that when you die, you go up to heaven to be with God and continue living in heaven. It doesn't tell us that you go to some imaginary place called hell and live there being tortured for eternity. What scripture tells us is that when you die, you're dead. You have no conscious existence. Your spirit ascends back to God who gave it, but your spirit is not a living entity. It is, it is uh, 
your spirit. And somehow God retains that as uh, the essence of what you are as a human being. But later on, the Bible tells us everyone who has died will be resurrected. And their spirit will be joined with a new body. We read in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 22, For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. But each one in his own order. Every human being, we're all made in the likeness of Adam, we're made of flesh and blood as he was, we're human beings, we're his descendants. And just as Adam died, every human being is destined to die. But also every human being is, because we are creatures of God, will be made alive. But each one in his own order. Jesus said in John 5, verse 28, John 5, verse 28, Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. And the word actually should be translated judgment, not condemnation, because there is a to be a general resurrection after the millennial period, which is also called the white throne judgment. It's a, it will be a period of judgment. And the dead will be resurrected. Those who were not resurrected earlier will be resurrected and taught God's way of life. And they will have a chance to repent and demonstrate the fruits of repentance. And that's this is what is pictured by the last great day. Revelation 20 and verse 11. Revelation 20 and verse 11, I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it from whose face the earth and heaven fled away and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead small and great standing before God and books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. So notice that the books were open. That's scripture. In fact, the word Bible just means books. It's, it's uh, the original meaning. But the books of scripture, God's word will be opened to them and will be explained and taught to them. And another book will be opened called the, called the book of life. And they will have a chance to have their names written in the book of life, meaning eternal life. And it will be written there in accordance with the judgment of God, according to their works. And they will have a chance to show God that they are willing to yield to him, to submit to him, to repent of their sins and obey him and to uh, have their sins covered by Christ's sacrifice. 
says, The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades, or the grave, delivered up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one according to his works. And so through that process, the family of God will be made complete. And God will dwell or tabernacle with all mankind who will have been changed from the flesh and blood to spirit beings, those who eventually have their names written in the book of life, receive the gift of eternal life, and not everyone will receive that gift. There will be some who are stubborn and will refuse to rebel and will be cast into a lake of fire to be burned up and will perish forever. But those who are changed into spirit beings in the likeness of God will dwell with God forever in joy and peace and happiness. We read in Revelation 21 and verse 2, Then I, John, saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and will be their God and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. All these wonderful promises God makes, including the promise of eternal life, He makes not out of constraint, but out of love. God didn't have to create human beings. He doesn't have to give us a place in his kingdom, but he has envisioned this plan because he is a God of love and God is full of an abundance of grace toward mankind, his creatures. And the festivals of God teach us about God's plan to make salvation possible for every human being who is willing to repent and learn to love and obey God. 